Welcome to episode 4 of Windwards, a podcast dedicated to gaming in Glorantha, the Bronze Age fantasy world feature in tabletop role-playing games such as RuneQuest, HeroQuest, but also presented in several other games and art forms. I am Ludovic, aka Lord Abdul. Bill. And I'm Jörg. Okay, um, this is uh, episode 4. Actually, we do have a nice uh, numerical announcement, I guess, maybe for the listeners who, uh, who want to hear about it. But we have passed the uh, 1111 downloads uh, of, the, uh, of the podcast. So there has been more than 1,111 people listening to our episodes. Which in binary, I believe, is what, 12? Um, 15 (laughs) thanks mom thanks thanks all of our moms that's three of the downloads Um, uh, if if your mom listens to a Glorenthan podcast uh, I want to meet your mom she's awesome my mom is hip And now it's time to gather into Town Center. The Herald's Podium is where the members of the tribe listen to the news of the world. All right. Um, a quick look at uh, the problem that's plaguing us. Um, our band will be plaguing us for a couple of years to come. We'll, we'll get on the other side of it, but not today. Gen Con 2020 canceled, but not totally bad news on this one. They are looking at um, alternatives. We are... Seeing that virtual options are being placed under consideration, you're speculating that he wants to see a, um, a VR interactive booth where you can have a look at a telecamera to pan left, right, uh, check things out. Nudo's saying, as long as I can see the books. <laughs> as long as I can see the books. <laughs> yeah. So there, um, could be a, there could be a VR experience of lining up at the bathrooms. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's way too much reality. <laughs> and with that, let's turn over to Chaosium News. We do have a new publication out for Runquist Glorantha, at least in PDF. That's the Pegasus Plateau and other stories. Well, uh, we already got a preview of one of the scenarios in there, the Rattling Wind. And now we have the whole bunch of, I think it's six scenarios and uh, two uh, minor settings and it's uh, more importantly absolutely gorgeous the art is uh, is amazing i find yeah it brings in a new tribe the locane tribe uh, comes uh, to uh, your books and uh, your screens now and it gives you a new um, starting uh, place uh, this one by john wick and renicott's uh, hope which is a hamlet or a proto clan which is right on the border of Runatash. Exactly. Now that you mention it, uh, this is another one of Urbanquest's um, efforts of bringing in the newcomer to uh, Glorantha, uh, Glorantha. You could use the pre-gens right out of the box uh, for this, I'm sure. But uh, basically speaking, your new characters should be fine. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think uh, like uh, Jason Dural said that it was important to bring, to bring some new voices to write material for uh, RuneQuest and Glorantha. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see John Wick writing for RuneQuest now, that's pretty cool. Uh, and He's Steve an old Perry. man, isn't he? Yeah, but I don't think he ever he ever wrote for um, uh, for uh, RuneQuest. And I mean, for people who don't know John Wick, he was the co-creator of uh, Ars Magica. Uh, he's mm-hmm. the creator of Seven C, uh, and he did a whole bunch of uh, cool stuff in his career. And as mentioned, a lifetime fan. Well, he he claims to be pretty close to a lifetime fan of Chaosium. 
his yeah. own words. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he even uh, did a blog on uh, being the author on this. So mm -hmm. yeah, it will be a show notes. Let's go back to the rumors of episode zero zero three. We were talking about how it also is in three dimensions. You look <laughs> on the cover and you see that they are climbing. Yes. Is, is that a total party kill I see about to happen? Uh, probably. I mean, uh, only Vasana seems to be fighting off the eagles. The other ones are just turning their back while Vishidan is screaming like, hey, watch out, giant griffins attacking. Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be some... Uh... <laughs> yes, man, not, not eagles, griffins. Hippogriffs. There we go. Uh, another thing about the Pegasus Plateau is that uh, this is also the return of uh, Steve Perrin to RuneQuest, right? I don't think he has written for RuneQuest for a while, has he? Uh, well, he uh, was uh, one of the editors for the new rules, so... Uh, was it, wasn't he uh, just credited there because he wrote no, no, this on he, Q2? He did, he, did have he did have direct input, as, uh, at least as an advisor to those rules. Okay, but oh. has he ever written a scenario? Not recently. York, who was the art director on uh, the project? Well, that's Karlin Kadiev, the uh, artist for Prince of Sarta comic. And, uh, well, he has done quite a lot of art direction already in the last few um, publications and uh, also provided some of the art. And uh, and there's an interview of Kadiev on the Chaosium blog, so we're going to link to that because it has a bit of... Uh, backstory on how the book came to be because yeah like I said the book is really looking good so chaosium.com bottom of the page blog post yeah or check the link in the show notes or check the link you got it <laughs> yeah there's even uh, actually uh, Jason Dural I mean they, they seem to uh, do a lot more communication on this book compared to the previous books uh, I think there's been like two or three blog posts about it so far on chaosium.com uh, with some interviews about uh, again backstories and stuff like that so that's interesting um, yeah is this uh, the most collaborative effort that they've had so far maybe yeah mm -hmm. maybe I don't know. Or well, the most authors in one piece uh, mm -hmm. for New Chaosium, uh, RuneQuest. And, and maybe it's possible that uh, this is a sign that uh, going forward, they will have more, you know, marketings and interviews about uh, books as they come out. And that might be interesting. I love to hear about uh, behind the scenes stuff. Mm. And another possibility um, is they might be catching this stride and we can expect more great stuff um, as they go forward. Uh, we can only hope, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the book is out in PDF, and uh, as always, when you buy the PDF now, you get the price of the PDF uh, deducted from the print book later when it comes if out. You buy it in, uh, from... Yeah, if you buy it from Chaosium as opposed to from uh, some other store. But uh, yeah, exact. So, um... well, um, there's another freebie uh, for the COVID nineteen uh, period from Chaosium. Uh -huh. And it's a new board, board game uh, by Johnny Wacker, which uh, I saw premiered uh, last Kraken. It's mm -hmm. called Last Faction Hero. And it mm. well, it features a map of Glorantha cut uh, vertically. You move uh, across uh, the various planes of the elements with some of the greatest heroes, heroes of Glorantha. And you meet, you fight, you uh, get followers. A little bit of dice rolling and some rather hero questy uh, movement rules there. So uh, it's a free. It's a free download on a new platform they uh, have. Oh yeah, no, on each IO. 
Yeah. And you have to print the rules and the tokens yourself and cut them out. Uh, I actually uh, got them printed at some uh, local professional printer to get like some good quality uh, cardboard uh, material. So yeah, people can get that from each IO. Uh, okay, let's talk a bit about uh, Johnston Compendium now, Bill. Well, uh, Johnston Companion continues to do well. The feature of our grant and fan publications is in good shape. We've got one top seller of all drive-through products, number five for the uh, Six Seasons of Starter. Well, top seller of all community items. No, not all products, everything. Oh, really? Everything. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I know. It's mind-boggling. Carrying <laughs> on. it uh, Back, okay, now you brought up the uh, community products. Yeah. We have four items yesterday, as of yesterday. I think it's uh, five today, so it'll, yeah. it changes. Four items on the uh, top uh, of the hottest community content. Number mm-hmm. one is Six Seasons of Saturday. Number two, Rough Guide to Glamour, uh, our old um, uh, bath fave. We'll be talking more about that as time goes along. <laughs> four, Elgar's Blade, part two of the Red Deer Saga, which I believe uh, brings in the Sassini uh, tribe again uh, in Cooper's stomping grounds. Milani, thank you very kindly. Mm-hmm. Much appreciate it. And Armies and Enemies of Dragon Pass um, comes back to number nine. Biggest news, 45 items. Um, there once was a time when there were only five items here. Day number one of uh, the Johnstown Compendium, five items. Today, 45. Cool. Nice to see the community uh, picking up the Glorenthan uh, flame. Fan-sponsored stuff, sure. I mean, uh, but we, we all want the products out of Chaosium, but nice yeah. to see that people are uh, creating it. Yeah, that's cool. Ludo, what you got to say about uh, some Johnstown Companion uh, goods? Well, we've got a whole bunch uh, that uh, were released since uh, last episode. So first, uh, we were talking about the VTTs, virtual tabletops, when you play online with your friends on Skype or Zoom or whatever. And you can mm-hmm. use uh, things like Roll20 to do all the battle mat combat scenes. Well, uh, somebody in the community, uh, Dario Corallo, has been... Somebody, indeed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's been, There's uh... a bit of story behind that. Oh yeah, okay. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, he's been uh, making a whole bunch of tokens for VTTs, so tokens of uh, trolls, tokens of flying trollkins and baboons and stuff like that that you can use to uh, have uh, well baboons and trolls and all that in Roll Twenty that you can. Well, yeah, and uh, Tusk Riders, which are uh, useful, of course, if you want to play the first adventure in the uh, RuneQuest um, uh, Game Master Adventures. Uh, Apple Lane. So, and small but not least, antelope lancers. Yeah, so we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes. All of them are like a few bucks, like three or four bucks for maybe between eight and 12 tokens, uh, and that you can then drop into your World 20 um, uh, thing and uh, kill all your players with them. Has anybody tried to print these out uh, for home use? Oh, good question. Uh, I don't, well, I haven't tried, uh, but that would be uh, an interesting uh, alternative use for them, yes? Uh, Bill, you can talk about the number one seller. The number one seller. Well, I said that uh, we'd be coming back to this eventually. And I can't see why not. Uh, Andrew Logan Montgomery is a name that's uh, fairly familiar to everybody about the past few years in uh, the world of Grantha. He's been writing uh, some very glowing things about 
his uh, fellow Johnstone uh, Compendium people. He's been writing some very glowing things about RuneQuest Glorantha, and now he's writing something that many people are writing glowing things about called The Six Seasons in the Sarder. Taking from an idea of Greg's, where uh, Greg uh, created stories, created epic poems, told a little bit about them and said that they influenced the world of Grantha, but the inspirations of um, Moon Sun, the Haniel saga, for instance, would be one. Well, Mr. Montgomery has decided to create one of his own. Rather intriguing idea, he's come up with an epic poem. The poem's name is the Harrowborn, which tells the tale of the 13th Collymore Clan. Now, the poem is called the Yusu Fus. Anybody wants? Anybody want to try to, to tackle that? Yusufus. Yusufus. <laughs> okay, so we're we're almost under the same idea that it should be Yusufu. The Yusufu poem, um, tons of stanzas, long epic um, edda, t- telling the tales of the life of a group of young adults of this uh, new clan over six seasons. The six seasons is harder. I've looked at it. The artwork is um, but lovely. The uh, layout is uh, perfectly functional. There are some really interesting ideas that, uh, well, he, he introduces character creation with a couple of notes on NPC creation. He talks about how to give player characters agency when dealing with uh, NPCs that are functionally leaders and heroes of the sagas. Mm-hmm. Everything looks really good. It's being recommended left and right. Well, we can only hope that we'll be seeing more material from uh, Andrew uh, Logan uh, Montgomery. Rorg, yep. uh, do you want to weigh in on any comments? Anything yeah, uh, you uh, want to say in conclusion? You, have, you haven't uh, mentioned uh, one of the high points here, which is uh, some uh, notes on hero questing. <laughs> in hero quest. Now, hold on just hero. a second. Do you mean the thing that's coming out next year? No, I'm, I'm meaning <laughs> hero questing, the activity in the hero planes. And uh, Andrew provides, I think, five or six pages of rules for that. Yes, you can have your rules for hero questing, Bill. Now. And you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. Well, exactly. I, I kind of like that idea. Yeah. Well, Jörg, uh, what have you got to tell us about uh, the next uh, compendium? Actually, I wanted to uh, just say something about Six Seasons of Sartar is that, I don't know about you, but I was a bit surprised to see Andrew go with RuneQuest as the rule system for his books. Like Andrew has always struck me as a, a very kind of narrative and mythically inspired guy. I mean you 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 look at some of the some of the uh, texts in Six Seasons of Sartor or even in his blog and it's very uh, lyrical, it's very poetic. It's uh, he's like a, a great writer. Uh, and so I definitely thought he would have gone with uh, Hero Quest as the as the rules for his book. I have always said that if you're playing RuneQuest correctly, it should be a story, it should be a tale, it should take you away and uh, evoke things. This has come up quite often on BRP Central, um, again. Yeah, I mean, my statement I, is, is it has to be a story, otherwise it ain't RQ. Yeah, I, I, I agree that you can do uh, uh, many narratively driven things in RuneQuest 2. I, I was just like, I was surprised. I expected Six Seasons on Sartar to be a HeroQuest book, so I was uh, uh, nicely surprised to see uh, RuneQuest. Even like a couple of uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, recommendations on making uh, uh, kind of children, teenager um, characters in RuneQuest, because that's uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm working on for my uh, campaign, so... 
a lot of us old timers, uh, York, myself, um, possibly Andrew, harken back, uh, definitely Sean Carpenter, harken back to the days where uh, you were an 18 year old, shallow youth. <laughs> you've, uh, you've been given a club, you walk into Gimpy's, and you get into a barroom fight. <laughs> At the end of the barroom fight, you look around to see if anybody's coming after you that um, happened to know the guy that you just beat. <laughs> so you're, you're saying that all those books uh, with uh, kid characters like Six Seasons of Sartor or the upcoming uh, Valley of Plenty, this is all because uh, we're all a bunch of uh, uh, old guys in their midlife crisis? <laughs> well, no, as, uh, one could actually draw that uh, reasoning. I understand where you're coming from on that. I was thinking more along the lines of we were going back to our first games when we were all um, starting out from scratch. Oh, that, that's yeah. how it used to be. Once upon a time, you started out as a lay member. You were not even an initiate. True. Zero true. experience. Yeah. yeah. And away you went. Yeah, Jeff Richards uh, said that he changed that uh, for the new RuneQuest edition because he didn't want to go back to the whole like zero to hero thing and uh, that he wanted to cut uh, to cut down on the time it takes for you to reach Rune, uh, Rune Lord uh, levels because not not many people reached it back in the day, I hear. BRP Central has a uh, poll, though, that I uh, started a while back that says uh, that more people are really interested in playing the old days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. It's probably because BRP is full of Gorknars. <laughs> <laughs> We're showing our age. Okay, no, perfectly fine. And yeah. this is one for us old uh, buggers, but I'm, I'm sure the kids will dig it, too. Six Seasons of Sarder. Yeah, yeah, get it. It's good. Eric? Yeah, and... How goes Blade? Elder's Blade, yes. It's part two of the Red Deer Saga, which started with the White Rocks scenario and scenario and background. And this has more background. It also has a very old companion, the drinking rules from uh, Runkus Vikings, which are printed here with uh, permission. <laughs> so, yay. So, uh, as you were talking about visiting Gimbis and uh, taking up a club, well, there's a step in between. You get drunk. And now you have rules for having that. a beer. Having, having a beer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was talking about a Canadian club when I said picking up a club. The Canadian club is a drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this time the uh, Namolding uh, clan people will go a bit on a travel and visit their neighbors. Hmm? And yeah. Namolding clan. What tribe are they of, uh, um, York? Well, the Namolding used to be a Kolima clan up to uh, the Starbar Rebellion, and they have been uh, Malani clans ever since, which, oh. which is the last 12 years. Okay. Uh, do we have any more on Elgar's Blade? I think we will revisit that uh, when the next part of uh, the Red Deer saga comes out. It looks like they come very much uh, one after the other. Oh, cool. Well, that's great. Well, we've got I, drinking rules this time. Let's see what we, what we get next time. Well, not only drinking rules, but also a drink list, like uh, with with prices yeah. and stuff. So uh, that's good. Rito, let's go to the big thing. What area of the world is this taking part in? Uh, Elgar's Blade. It is taking place, uh, I believe, not too far from between Aldachor and Alone. And that happens to be your bailiwick now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm up up around alone, uh, but yeah, those uh, those would be my neighbors. There you have it. Yeah, this will uh, let me have a few ideas for what kind of uh, problems the neighbors can cause. 
Although it's probably peanuts compared to what the other neighbors of Alone can cause, as in Chaos, Giants, Trolls, and Telmory. So uh, I've got way enough trouble already in my neck of the woods. <laughs> oh, and uh, Brankbane, of course, the undead from the, the Woods of the Dead, which uh, which actually have a, a new write-up in the Pegasus Plateau that we talked about earlier. So yeah, I'm set. I, I've got enough problems already, Bill. <laughs> well, we could get you away from problems, and we could get you into uh, one of my favorite territories, uh, the Monster of the Month. Oh, yes, we could talk about that. Uh, Austin Conrad, a friend of the show, is uh, again at it, releasing a new issue of his Monster of the Month uh, thing on Jonathan Compendium. The new one is called Hunters of the Sky, uh, of course, again, written by Austin Conrad and edited by, let me read that, uh, edited by some guy named Bill. Do you know a little bit behind on my editing, but yes, <laughs> we will get that done. Honest, Austin. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as far as I understand, so this introduces like some new uh, sky creatures uh, that uh, are living in the realm of Yelm, the sun god. Uh, as far as I can tell, uh, tell, they are not mentioned anywhere in Glorantin canon. So, this is uh, like a completely new made up thing that you can use to surprise your players. Is that correct, Bill? Austin says the same thing. He has absolutely no reason to believe that these things exist, but yeah, um, I like his thinking, though. He came across a beautifully uh, done uh, royalty-free uh, piece of art and said, I want that. <laughs> <laughs> and started setting it out. I mean, the, the cover looks really awesome, like that bird with the, with the vertical... Uh, the, the, the vertical uh, face. So again, you can get that on DriveThruRPG for mm. only, well, actually less than a couple of bucks. We're not leaving the Johnstown Companion all that quickly, though. Uh, Jorg has got one last item to bring to our attention. Oh, yeah. And, it's and not a good a, one. It's not about P, uh, it's not PDF, only it's about print on demand. Ooh, that's so, better. Yeah. And the first item uh, to go to print on demand uh, on uh, on drive through uh, appears to be the rough guide to grammar. Mm-hmm. And other titles uh, should be available in print soon as well. Okay, now we're done with Johnston Companion news, but we have a couple miscellaneous news. Well, El Rune Blogger, um, one of our faves uh, here in Windward's point of the faves on BRP Central, and one of the faves in uh, the tribe of uh, Glorantin folk, tells us how to start bringing Glorantha to the masses. Mm-hmm. Let me let me quote him here. Glorantha is a huge fantasy world that the main creator, Grace Staff, has started exploring in the 60s. Since then, it has been developed uh, to a level of detail that can be daunting for newcomers. Many different books, role-playing games, and editions that can be uh, difficult to really know where to begin. Below, I offer my approach to this topic divided into three questions. When should I start reading? What role-playing games should I choose? And what are good beginning scenarios or campaigns? He agrees with us, it seems, uh, gents. Yeah, because we talked about all that in the first episode, right? And the very, very beginning of his says an awful lot of the same uh, things that we said, gives an awful lot of the same, uh, not everything. He, he, he gets a little bit into the weeds here. Uh, how do you uh, present an easy man's way to presenting Lorantha? <laughs> 
It's a little bit lengthy, but um, I I, th- I agree with all of his uh, choices, despite the length. Yeah, that's good, and it's uh, it's nice to have a reference like this in, like this in writing somewhere on the internet. So that's a transcript good will point you to it. Do have a look at it and read everything else about the really neat thing about when when you get here. This yeah. is all written in Spanish. Uh, mostly yes. Uh, mostly yes, yes, yeah. correct. He has a few articles in English, but yeah, um, there's Fear a, not. Fear and there's not. A, he on, on his blog he has a button to translate he has everything. A anyway. So yeah, that's good. Everything can be digitally translated, and it translates very nicely. So yeah, yeah. don't don't worry about where it, uh, well where it came from. Just or, have a look at where it's going. Or just learn Spanish. I mean, that's a good opportunity. <laughs> Fantastic reasoning. I, <laughs> bravo. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Jan Cooper. Do you know Jan Cooper, Bill? Ian Cooper. I do indeed. Yeah. He's the line editor of HeroQuest. Uh, and he was a guest on the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff podcast. A, um, uh, I think in any, well, multiple prize winning, but among some of them, uh, any winning podcast about that, po- that post- ah, best podcast uh, hosted by uh, Kenneth Haidt and Robin DeLaws. Uh, both of whom are uh, very well-known game designers. I mean, Robin Dillos is the guy who created uh, the Hero Quest rules back when it was Hero Wars. But anyway, and he... kids, they don't ramble, and they actually make sense on occasion, unlike us. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 they're very good. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ian Cooper was a guest on their podcast, so uh, he talks a bit about the Quest Worlds SRD because you might remember uh, last episode we talked a bit about it. Uh, they are releasing uh, chaosium is releasing a open game license version of the hero quest rules so that you can make up your own um uh like hero quest roleplay based role-playing games so uh it's in, it's kind of interesting to hear uh, Ian talk to robin laws about it because robin laws came up with the rules so it was uh, there was a few interesting tidbits there uh yeah. and he also uh, teases a couple of uh, possible upcoming hero quest glorantha books like uh, i think we mentioned that in a rumor previously in a previous episode that uh, there might be a third book in the red cow uh, saga after we mentioned um, that yeah, yeah. And uh, and also that uh, they might put out a couple more standalone adventures, just like they did with the High Wall Inn, which they had released for the uh, Greg Stafford Memorial Day. Um, so anyway, I believe there's actually a product out there right now under uh, the uh, Quest Worlds uh, label. Oh, is there? Which there one? is uh, Sean Carpenter and his uh, Mamesis. Oh, uh, it's yeah. not out yet, but it will be soon. But yeah, the Valley of Plenty uh, Hero Quest Glorenta thing is also being released as a Quest World uh, book. Um, so yeah, we'll see. So I haven't seen that released yet. That is still pending. Uh, yeah, still it's still pending. Still, still pending. And interestingly, also is that Ian Cooper mentioned that uh, don't forget, kids, you can still buy the RuneQuest books. Remove all the stat blocks and use them in HeroQuest. Let's take our dice. Mm-hmm. Dice in hand and our Game Master's books. Because it's time to roll on the rumor tables, we will learn and speculate about what's coming up in the world of Glorantha. Okay, I'm going to roll now. 
Ooh, it's a zero four. Oh, good rule. There's got to be some uh, really interesting stuff coming up. Some really interesting stuff. Ducks. Ducks. <laughs> and, and what? Uh, and, and more ducks. This is. Uh, that should have been a zero one if you ask me. That seems like <laughs> critical. Well, Maybe we have an 80% duck rule. That's ducks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's uh, a critical. So apparently, uh, uh, Stuart Stansfield, aka Quakatoa on the BRP forums, I think, uh, has been uh, maintaining this thread for a while, I think, on the forums about the, the famous ducks of the Hero Wars with like write-ups of all kinds of famous uh, duck NPCs that nobody knows, but somehow they're famous in duck circles, I don't know. Uh, and so he's teasing... Uh, <laughs> He is teasing a um, uh, an upcoming maybe Johnston Companion item that is a book of uh, duck NPCs. I don't know. Maybe uh, I mean theoretically, like nobody said Argrath was a guy, right? It might he might be a duck. I don't know. Well, excuse me, might be. <laughs> okay, he is a duck. Um, well, uh, a real roadmap would have uh, pronounced the title a little differently because ducks, ducks and and more ducks were th the three duck units in the Dragon Pass board game. There oh, we yes. go. Yeah, so, uh, what were those three? Because yeah, he's taking inspiration from some of the tokens on the old Dragon Pass board game, right? Like, what what were those uh, units? Your you know, oh, they they were part of a Sata City militia, uh, the yeah. only infantry unit uh, which did uh, missile damage, mm. and yeah, they had the uh, wh whopping uh, combat rating of one, and, yeah. <laughs> and they uh, could move uh, across uh, water or marsh very easily, which uh, usually led to one of them uh, to be sent to Delecti and. Well, there you got your first zombie unit. Well, this rumor just has to be true. You know that this is going to be published under the size 1D6 plus 2 uh, label in yeah. a month or two. Maybe next year. <laughs> I love that label name. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And uh, remember that when you do send ducks across the marsh to the Lecti, uh, then they get transformed into what, Bill? Because we talked about it in the previous episode, right? Well, unfortunately, Jorg is probably going to be thinking barbecue duck. <laughs> <laughs> No. He doesn't really have much use for ducks, that, uh, that lad. But uh, yeah. <laughs> if they should end up in uh, this area, they might become the quacking dead. Yeah. <laughs> So if you want to know more about the Quacking Dead, uh, we talked about that briefly in a previous episode, or you can just check the Johnston Compendium. Well, let's see what we got here. Yeah, we rule a 24. Hearts and Glorantha. This magazine came out during the dark times of no RuneQuest, with the exception of uh, it having a mongoose in front of the name. Oh, the Great Winter? <laughs> <laughs> the great winter, the ice storm where people were eating in their own livers and it was a terrible time. <laughs> terrible time. People were playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was bad. <laughs> it was bad. Oh, come on. So but there was still a heart beating in Glorantha and it was uh, Hearts and Glorantha number one came out back in uh, the, uh, I believe the noughties. Okay. And that's a, that was a fanzine, right? 
fanzine by a gentleman that is often found uh, saying very nice things about everybody on BRP Central, Newt. Very nice name, very nice person. A couple of nice articles um, um, in it. Mm-hmm. Well, last year, just um, in time for Christmas, came the bad news. There would be no more heart sink, Lorantha. It would be about being put on hiatus. Yeah. And then came COVID-19. Along came the global pandemic. Extra time on everybody's hands, and Hearts and Granta is back. Number eight is available this summer. So just because wow. uh, he's stuck at home, he's working on a new issue, and that's one of the rare good news coming out of the pandemic. A fanzine devoted to second age, third age Clarantha. Uh, D100, MRQ, BRP, HeroQuest. This is a historical. Will he continue to um, bring it out with the idea of um, uh, Mongoose? Don't know. I'm pretty sure all of the rest of it will be um, involved. Twitches yeah. every year, summer and winter. Welcome back. Cool. Good to yeah. see you. Um, good to see you coming um, coming about with this uh, fine uh, piece of uh, Marantha news. Well, it, it's it's just a rumor, though, so we don't know if it's baseless or true or false. And gi- given the uh, oh my, but yeah. given the given the erratic uh, publication schedule of Hearts in Glorantha uh, in the past ten years, uh, we'll have to wait until it's actually out. But uh, yeah, you know, f- fingers crossed. Please be true. Please be true. Please be true. Still be one footnote. Hey, mon ami, on dit que il y a un rumor en français. My uh, very bad French. Can you understand what I said? Uh, oui, je peux. Il y a en effet une rumeur pour RuneQuest en français. RuneQuest in oui. French. Exactement. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I have a 58. Um, so it's just a tiny uh, thing. So um, there was a, a crowdfunding campaign to crowdfund uh, the French version of RuneQuest role-playing in Guaranta. Uh, so the rulebook PDF has gone to backers, so I received it. Uh, I'll go over it uh, soon. The one thing that should be mentioned is that uh, the difference with the English version is that there's an extra uh, scenario at the end of the book called When Spirit Fails. Uh, and uh, I'll look over it, but it looks like uh, it's an adventure that pits you against like some lunars trying to capture a kid or something like that. I haven't, uh, I still need to read it. I'll talk about it more. Uh, but we also have a little teaser image that we'll put in the show notes about uh, some of the extra original material that comes with the French version of RuneQuest, which is Apparently, uh, it has been approved by Chaosium and all that. Uh, for example, the main piece is a uh, source book on the Dundaleos tribe called uh, Children of the Flame. A tragic tribe that has uh, seen very little in print up until now. Yes. Uh, Yes. So as soon as we get more on this, I will report. But so far, uh, at least I have some nice picture of some uh, high llama rider or something in Prague somewhere. I don't know. We uh, were discussing this before recording the show. Oh and... my, you get two grog knives on the go on this and you can get into trouble. <laughs> Alright, gentlemen, celebrities, songs, debauchery, LARPing, and the moon. What do these have in common? Hmm. Is humor in Glorantha uniquely Californian, or can it be found uh, far, as far from California as one can get? 
Windward would like to uh, welcome uh, Nick Brooks, Chris Gilda, and Mike Hagen. I'm hoping I pronounced everybody's names correctly. Do feel free in a second to uh, correct me. <laughs> hmm. Well, we would like you to welcome you to our luxurious uh, studios high in the clouds. And gentlemen, would you like to briefly introduce yourself and your deeds of renown to our audience? Let's uh, start with uh, Nick. Oh, hi. Uh, thank you very much for having us on Windwords, Bill. I'm Nick Brook. Um, I met Chris and Mike 30 or so years ago when we were all history students at Oxford University together. After leaving the university, I wrote to Chaosium and Greg Stafford put me in touch with a chap called David Hall, who was at the time producing a RuneQuest magazine. So I was quite active in fandom throughout the 1990s, both online and in conventions and in the reaching room medical publications. Well... Thank you, Nick. That's awesome. Uh, Mike, uh, do you, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your deeds of renown? Thanks, Bill. Uh, this is Michael Hagen. Um, yeah, RuneQuest a little bit through uh, high school. Uh, met up with Nick and Chris at college and was fortunate enough to be able to attend the second convulsion in 1992 uh, when I met Greg Stafford and the rest of the tribe and the Tales of the Reaching Moon crew and was involved with writing some articles for them. Um, and then was asked to put together the Gazetteer and the Rough Guide for um, the Life of Moon Sun, which was the third um, freeform they were operating. And then I emigrated uh, to the United States and fell out of Glorantha for a little while and uh, got an email from uh, Jeff Richard back in 2018. Um, Nick had asked him to say, well, if you are putting this guide to Glorantha together, you should probably check in with Mike. He's got some good ideas and some experience here. And uh, the rest is history. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Chris. Well, or thank you very much, Mike. Hey, Chris, <laughs> would you like to uh, join Hi in? there. I'm... I'm uh, Chris Skidlow. I'm an author and historian. I used to play RuneQuest 2 at university very avidly around all the traditional campaigns. And I invented a game called Credo, the game of dueling dogmas. I went along to uh, Leicester to the first convention, convulsion uh, to try and sell this to the Chaosium and uh, met Greg Stafford. He snapped it up, published uh, Credo. Um, and... Uh, Subsequently, the next uh, convulsion, they wanted to have a free form that was based on the way that Credo had worked, but about the Malchioni religion. So I then uh, came along as part of that, and then subsequently did Life of Moon Sun and uh, the Tarsh War, which is a mini free form about life in the lunar army. Wow. So we've got an illustrious trio, as you can see, that are going to be uh, regaling your ears with magic and imagination from the worlds of Glorantha, specifically the northern areas of the world of Glorantha, the northern areas of Canutella. But uh, the best way to start, I figure, is we're going to go to the very end of our uh, podcast uh, here and introduce the concept that we're going to be throwing at you at the end of this interview called Rapid Fire Questions. Uh, Ludo, can you take that away? Yeah, a few rapid fire questions to uh, to get you all warmed up. So you only get uh, to do like a very short reply, uh, potentially even just one word. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, first rapid fire question is: Do you say Genertella or Genertella? Nick, uh, hard G Genertella. The idea that Greg Stafford was talking about his wasted genitalia all the time is too much <laughs> to contemplate. Nice, Chris. Genertella. Oh, and uh, Mike. 
Genna Tower after oh. the god Gennert. Uh, ducks or Trollkin? Same order, Nick. Ducks. Uh, Mike. I'm sorry, what was the question again? Uh, ducks, <laughs> ducks or Trollkin? Are, are, are you trying to dodge the question? Are you going to say none? He's being a troll. Uh, <laughs> has to be ducks. Oh, Chris? Trollkin. Very fond of them. Ah. No, no, uh, no fondling of Trollkin. This is PG. I thought we discussed this. <laughs> Please. Value trokin. Uh, <laughs> oh, good lord. So, uh, Pavis or Pavis? Nick? Pavis. Mm, Mike? Uh, I take the uh, Michael O'Brien approach that it's actually Pavi. Oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, Chris? We oui, oui, say Pavi. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, la last one, and then we stop the serious questions. Uh, chaos, <laughs> uh, ch chaos or disorder? Nick. Um, chaos is the fundamental organizing principle of the world. <laughs> True, Mike. Oh, chaos. Disorder is just a big mess. No one wants that. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> I always like rat slap, so disorder. Ah, thank you for adding a bit of variety. Okay, yeah. thank you. We'll do some more rapid fire questions at the end. Yeah. You gentlemen have met our sage, um, our Lanker Mayan, Jorg. Uh, <laughs> let's just start our serious questions off with Jorg. Okay, so let's get serious. How come you invited yourself into our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> way to go, a, a very fair question, Jörg. Um, the truth of the so matter is, a month ago, we brought out a new edition of our Rough Guides Glamour. It has previously been a rather limited circulation, freeform player's handbook from the late 90s, um, and we got the opportunity to bring out a new, gorgeous, revised, expanded edition, more than 100 pages of quality Glorantham content. And I thought that because the listeners of your podcast are the most sophisticated English language podcast, um, Glorantham podcast listeners <laughs> in the world, and you are the premier... The, the only one. The only one. The premier English yes. language Glorantham podcast <laughs> and the one with the greatest range of accents, you were the obvious place for us to, to grace with our thing. <laughs> and also, we'd like to sell more copies of our book, and we thought if people hear us, they'll say, oh, 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 Brooke Hagen Gidlow, they're so funny, I shall buy their book. <laughs> Ludo, we did put York first so that we could have serious questions, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can we say for, for, for the historical record, one of the reasons that we're on the uh, podcast is we're all locked out in isolation because there's coronavirus pandemic. We'd much rather come and see you all in person, but we can't. So a podcast is the best way of chatting to you all. Mm -hmm. Or the negative view is normally on a Wednesday night, I'd be off playing nerd games at my local role-playing stock. But that's closed down because of the pandemic. So unfortunately, yeah. I have nothing else to do, and I might as well podcast. Okay. We're going to talk quite a bit about the Lunar Empire. How does it work? Or perhaps more interestingly, how does it fail to work? Chris, do you want to take this? Right. How does it work and how does it fail to work? Well, there's a couple of things about this. Um... I wanted to make the Lunar Empire work, and that was a um, a discipline that basically came out of meeting uh, Jeff Richard and the um, Pacific Northwest Farmers Collective way back when, where they looked at Glorantha and said that this ought to be an ancient world society. It ought to have an agrarian um, a, a ballot underneath it that's supporting it. And I looked at the Cult of Yelm as it was written up, published in one of the magazines by the Chaosium, 
And of course, there was no Yelmic state. It didn't, it didn't, uh, there was nothing where the cult of Yelm worked in the way it was written up as a cult. And I thought, if I can write up the Red Emperor cult for a state that actually works, so then you've got a state that is a genuine uh, ancient world state that works from an agrarian base that shows how the cursus honorum works, how you work your way up through the state. But for maximum game fun, we need that state not to work perfectly because you've got to have the grit, the dysfunction, the opportunity of the of the adventurers to get in and muck it up for it not to work. So that's why it, it would work perfectly if we didn't want to play a game in it. <laughs> My own take, um, and I don't know if this will surprise anyone, is that there's a big difference between the Lunar Empire, which it's very clear is a despotic tyranny propped up on a throne of lies, and the Lunar Way, which I like to think offers a genuine hope for freedom and cosmic liberation to the people of Glorantha. A quick note for our listeners, this is Mike Hagan speaking. Unfortunately, it's Brooke, but that is an example of the kind ah. of lies that a despotic tyrant would use. Here's the mirror and the mask. So, um, the Empire, on the one hand, for which I have very little time. I don't have much time for empires at the best of time. And the Lunar Way, which I think is a genuinely lovely religion that has the misfortune of being shackled to this terrible, terrible state. And this is one of the main flavors of Glorantha that I love, is the conflict between the ideals and the realities. You take um, the Christianity of the early church, isn't that lovely? You institutionalize it, you get the Inquisition and the Borgia papacy. Um, you get the French Revolution. Gosh, it's wonderful. Liberty, fraternity, equality. Who could be against that? And then the guillotines start going chippity, chippity, chip, and eventually you get Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, and it's That's that good. That's the best thing. <laughs> there you go. Um, so that's the thing I really like, is that tension between the religion, which on the face of it is lovely and liberating and positive and offers solace, and the empire, which has utterly perverted those messages. And that, to me, is a really interesting tension to have. And that, I think, is also how the Lunar Empire fails to work. I could talk about the White Moon here, but Mr. Gidlow is listening, and it's possibly not safe. <laughs> we expand if you want. Uh, yeah, and this is, this is my fear. I, a quick I think mention, a... uh, folks. Yeah, do, do, do mention who is speaking, yeah. and that way you won't have to have me give an inaccurate... Uh, evaluation of the guys so, based on who is green and who is blue okay so back to mine yeah, yeah thank you um yeah I, I just i think at a larger scale um i think it's clear that it, it works by harnessing that cyclical function of the moon that it's very much two steps forward one step back that it is it is built in that there are going to be setbacks um, of one kind or another, whether it's Penton invasions or interior and rebellions, but it always progresses forward. Um, I think it fails, or it fails to work uh, on a larger sense, it is because it is primarily an agrarian economy. In many ways, it's a, it's a surf-driven economy. So it's, it's less economically robust than Sata or Israelia or some of the other, um, other countries that are more com commercially based. And... I think when things start to go wrong, the wheels really do fall off the bus. Uh, and something Nick mentioned previously is that the countries that oppose it, whether it's Penton nomads or uh, Sodorites or Israelians, they are they don't have the same issue 
the Lunar Empire does of reconciling opposites. Um, that the fact that the Lunar Empire does harness chaos, uh, but it also, I think, ultimately weakens it um, in, in a game sense. So that's not a very large answer, but uh, I, if you were looking for that, then there it is. Yeah. So in the middle of this is the Capitol Glamour, and you wrote a book about that. Mm. Nick? We did. We did. Uh, Glamour is the capital of the Lunar Empire. It's founded um, when the Red Goddess ascended into the Middle Air as the Red Moon by her mortal son, the Red Emperor. Um, he drew a plan. He wed a local nymph. Chris can tell you about that. And um, this amazing city was built that's half of this world and half of it is Moonstruck. Um, yeah. So, Nick, what, what do you think, um, like, uh, playing Glamour, like gaming in Glamour, what kind of uh, gaming opportunities does that bring compared to gaming in the other uh, more covered uh, places in uh, uh, in Dragon Pass, like uh, uh, well, Prax and Sartar? What, uh, what what kind of cool stuff can you do only in Glamour or in the Lunar Empire? Uh, it's amazing. You're in the biggest, richest, most successful city in the world where the people who are actually going to shape the future of Glorantha live and work. Um, it's like going to Imperial Rome or Constantinople or Moscow or London. You're in the capital of the empire. All the movers and shakers are there. It's amazing. The wealth of empires flooded there. All the history of the Lunar Way is there and the history of the states that preceded it. It's phenomenal. But also, as well as that, it's a living reflection of lunar ideology. And for more on that, I think I'll hand you over to the guys who wrote The Gazetteer and The Guide. Mike, do you want to take it away? Um, yeah, sure. I think Nick definitely hit on a point there. Is It is an intentionally cosmopolitan um, milieu. Um, it's really meant to bring in all the disparate elements of the Lunar Empire and beyond. So what we really tried to do is while there is a uh, the overarching sense that this is the capital of the Lunar Empire, there are things that are going to happen regardless of what the players do. Um, if they stay home and just sit in a bar and drink, things are still going to happen. But whatever they want to do, you have the opportunity for them to explore it, whether it's high politics and intrigue, whether it's dungeon bashing, um, whether it's, you know, petty thieves, whether it's sort of, you know, a caper, whether it's someone posted on some of one of the forums, how when they read it, they were immediately seized with this idea of it being um, like a, uh, you know, 40 you know, noir adventure, you could do gumshoe. So what we've really tried to do is by creating this, this not too as massive, but certainly sort of this immersive city where it's basically all things to all people. Uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on this later, but it is deliberately written as being in some ways, a reflection of all cities. It ties in very much to the uh, the idea that M. John Harrison developed in Viraconium that it is a mirror of all cities. So there are bits of Moscow, there are bits of London, there are bits of New York, there are bits of L.A., um, 20th century cities. There's Rome, there's Byzantium, there's Kaistophon, um, there's uh, all of the great cities of the world are here. And if you approach it, I think, with that feel, it is ultimately 
with a little bit of imagination, and hopefully it inspires you to bring your imagination, you can make it applicable to whatever game you're playing. Um, so hopefully the, the idea is not to give everything on a silver platter in you know massive stat blocks but to give people it should be firing the neurons it should be inspiring people to bring their own glorantha into our glamour and make it something even better you've inspired me to ask you a follow-up question to that and that's uh can you tell me what city your favorite city in our world ended up in a uh, uh, glamour and where oh, 20th century city or ancient city. Yeah, in our world. Uh, on our, on our uh, blue yeah. marble, what ended up on the green loss in, in Glamour? That, oh, uh, oh, I actually had a, had a brief back and forwards about this um, uh, with Nick a couple of days ago, but um, I think it, it is Rome. I mean, mainly because I've been to Rome um, and mm -hmm. it's got that, the layers of history there. So again, first rule of fiction, write about what you know. You know, I've not been to Constant. I've not been to Istanbul. I've not been to Athens. <laughs> uh, I've not been to any of the, you know, the uh, any of the Asian cities. So Rome is the one I've actually been to several times. So that's where I'm drawing my experience from, and then interpolating out from that with um, other experiences. So maybe if I'd been to Jerusalem rather than Rome, it might it might have more of that in it. May May I dilate on that because I think this is something that might be interesting. Is in and who is this? This is Nick, Nick Brooks speaking about something that in the mid-90s, Chris and Mike and I all went for a week's holiday in Rome. Um, not ancient. Together. Obviously. That wasn't available. Same time, same hotel. Um, now, the thing is, I'm an uh, ancient historian, so I know ancient Rome. And Mike was at the time an art historian, so knew, he knew his Renaissance art. And Chris was a papal historian, so he knew everything there was to know about the Vatican and modern Italy. And between the three of us, it was a wonderful, self-guided exploration of everything. Whatever you bumped into, one of us would know what it was. Uh, that was just great fun. And I think some of that infectious enthusiasm for everything about the city made it into the rough guide. Chris Goodlow, yes, absolutely. It's Rome, the immortal city, and uh, clearly that's really strongly behind uh, glamour. Um, the Lunar Empire, fundamentally, from the counters on the White Bear and Red Moon board game, looks Roman. It's got legions. But clearly their capital city looks like that. And I think the way that Mike absolutely brought that alive as a place where he even told you what restaurants you had to go to. It was like as alive as the current Rome really is. Um, why you'd go there is because urban campaigning is fundamental to the fantasy role-playing genre. This is the city-state of the invincible overlord ramped up to 11. This is Lankmar, this is those kind of cities. I think if you were playing there as, a, as an adventurer, it, it, it's much more familiar than being in an Orlancy village because mostly we're urban people. We understand what it's like to go to a shop. We understand what it's like for there to be a library to look things up in. We understand what it's like for there to be a church on the corner of the street that you want to worship. And that allows you to ring the changes around the familiar rather than everybody constantly having to worry about how you light fires or what you have to do on a particular day of the week in the, out in the boondocks of um, Orlanthi land. Um, can I also say that something behind it 
when I was writing uh, my uh, part of Glamour for the life of Moonstone Freeform is uh, the capital city of La Republica de los Bananos in the um, Hunter Junter board game, <laughs> where you're trying to overthrow the state, you're trying to overthrow the Presidente using your military units. And at the first point, I thought, well, what would you need to seize control of in Glamour? I started working out what's the equivalent of the presidential palace, what's the equivalent of the chamber of deputies, what's the equivalent of the train station. And once I got all of those in position, which was a, a kind of a very jokey version of the city, I passed it over to Mike, who then went, well, there'd have to be roads here. Oh, this is where you'd have uh, be a restaurant. Oh, I can just imagine this is where, where, you, where your hotel would be. Oh, obviously, this is where, the, and so on, and actually fleshed out uh, something which, um, it's a wonderful clear excuse. Um, further to that, one of the things that was an inspiration for Chris's view of glamour, and this is uh, Nick Brooks speaking again, is in a very early issue of Tales of the Reaching Moon, there was a rumour that the, the um, layout of Lunar City was <laughs> shaped like the moon room, that there'd be a circular wall around the outside and a straight road up the middle, and there'd be a left half and a right half to the city. And Glamour delivers on that in spades. Uh, in the original Rough Guide, we had a map of outer Glamour, and we made it clear that this was half of the city, and the other half of the city was inner Glamour. Outer Glamour's the mostly mundane city, full of people working and doing jobs, and the chain gangs mending the streets, and this is where the army bases are, and the university is, and the Colosseum, and the Circus Maximus, and what have you. And then inner Glamour, the other half of the city, was Moon Sun's magical dream palace, his stately pleasure dome, rising up the terraces of the crater rim to Moon Sun's imperial palace at the very summit, uh, beyond which is only the red moon, or alternatively, the empty void at the heart of the crater. But I repeat myself. Um, now, that was a starting thing, but then Chris shook that up. So Glamour's divided into the left hand and the right hand. The right hand is a planned city with nice straight streets and tall blocks, all regularly built, probably since the fifth wave, because large parts of Glamour were raised during the Celeric um, invasions and persecutions in the fourth wave. The left hand of Glamour, on the other hand, is all nice, windy, old-fashioned buildings and parks and odd stuff. And it's a, it's a more organic, older part of the city. And then he, when you go the other side into the City of Dreams, that's a circular city in the heart of the circular city. But to the left of it, you've got the um, wild, overgrown uh, wilderness of follies and woods where the wild women live and the werewolves live and there are research stations and observatories and sinister sorcerers' towers and you do not leave the path when you go into the left horn, um, the, uh, excuse me, the, is it the ivory uh, horn? I forget. And on the other side, the silver horn is all planned estates and beautiful stately manors and lovely picnicking spots and scenic routes that you could take carriage rides around and it's completely safe, completely tame. So all of these mirrors, all of these reflections, all of these quarters that are the opposites of each other, all coming together to create this perfectly balanced lunar city, um, half of which probably isn't real. <laughs> it's Chris, nice. Chris Gidvey returns. Um, the original rumour said that the, there was a wall down the middle of the city to separate the rich from the poor. That's why uh, you've got 
sort of mundane on one side and, and, uh, and magical on the other side. And I'm pretty sure it was Mike that came up with the idea there was a Reeve Ghosh, uh, a left bank <laughs> of uh, glamour. That's got Hagen written all over it. I'm happy to take responsibility for that. I have no recollection, but fair enough. <laughs> you were drunk. So, <laughs> so um, you were talking about the manners and the people living there. And well, um, the Rough Guide to Glamour was uh, written as companion piece to a free form, The Life of Moon Sun. And yeah, we have all those uh, boobers and shakers in Life of Moon Sun. <laughs> so, uh, can you tell yeah. us a little more yes, about uh, that game? All right, so I'll uh, come in there. So, Chris Goodlow here. The genesis of this, uh, Nick and I were uh, live, uh, living together in uh, East London. As a couple. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes us sound much more metropolitan than we really are. Um, I decided I we we I decided to get our group together to play a mini freeform in the in the apartment called the Hunt for Red Storm Season, which was going to be based on the uh, Tom Clancy novel Hunt for Red October. And can, can and you explain said, what the what the freeform is? Well, basically, I wrote up um, a scenario about a lunar ice breaking ship being stolen and being used for separate purposes. Then I invited uh, my friends around, so these were the Tales of the Reaching Moon crew primarily, gave them out a character sheet very, very briefly. It would say things like, you are a fat sultan, or you are uh, the sinister leader of the secret police, you are the head of the Senate, or whatever. It would then say, there's a uh, red storm season has gone missing, you think it's X, and you've got to track this down. So sort of like a murder mystery party, if you imagine those things where you're given, you're the butler, you're the vicar, and one person knows the truth of it, one person knows who's stolen Red Storm season and how to track it down. And then it was up to those players to then interrogate each other, move around, look at maps, ask me for different materials. We even had a, a red lava lamp, which... Uh, was used as the oracle, where you could just stare at it for long enough and hope you would get some kind of understanding <laughs> of what was going on. And anyway, two, two of those participants uh, were, um, were David Hall and Kevin Jacklin, and they went away with that thinking, you know, we could actually make a proper freeform out of this with, like, big character sheets with uh, an economic game, with a religious game, with a military game involved in it. Uh, so they then came up with the bare bones of how you would turn that, I can't remember how many people were in our apartment, about 10, 12 people, into a 50-person freeform, uh, uh, which we could then take to convention. So they, we then sat in the pub and worked out, worked out which uh, characters each of us wanted to have and uh, what secrets we would have and so on. And there we go. We started writing this. I think it was originally to be called something like the death of moon sun because being a kind of sort of murder mystery moon sun would be killed and there'd be all kinds of things going on but uh, david and kevin pretty soon realized that was a massive spoiler and they went for the monty python inspired life of moon sun like life of brian but also <laughs> mythically moon sun doesn't die moon sun's a 
continually regenerating eternal uh, God figure. So the life and death of Moon Sun is sort of bound up within itself. Mm. If I can add something to that, Chris, and it's Nick speaking here. Um, one of the things we produced the first edition of the rough guide actually had a few things in it that isn't in the new edition because they're so fundamental to your understanding of Glorantha that they're now in the Glorantha source book, which is brilliant. One of those is an article about the Lunar New Year ceremony. Um, the rough guide to glamour first edition had about 40 pages and one of them was full of this lavish description of the intricacies of the Lunar New Year ceremony. We gave this to every player. Nobody ever got back to us and said, hang on, Nick, I've played your free form. What I don't understand is, why did you give us this piece of fiction at the start of the free form that says, look, every year, all of the grandees of the empire are called together to the capital, and at the high point of the ceremony, Moon Sun disappears, and everyone panics, and they run around for a while, and then at the end of the New Year ceremony, Moon Sun reappears and is confirmed as the emperor and goes on ruling for another year. Nobody ever asked that. So that's a podcast exclusive for you. Um, the principles of the Lunar New Year ceremony absolutely informed the writing of Reaching Moon Megacorp's Life of Moon Sun. So, yeah, um, there are quite a, quite a few of the characters up on Nick's uh, website. And can you tell me uh, which one was your personal favorite? Let's start with Mike. Oh, yeah, it's Mike here. Uh, my favorite is Mariros Conradin, the Colonel of the Grim Soldiers and Rune Lord of Dan 5 Corone. I had written this as a character for my Dan 5 Corone cult write-up for Tales of the Reaching Moon. So as I was actually living in the States at the time and wasn't actually involved in the life of Moon Sun beyond writing the Gazetteer and the Rough Guide, um, I was extremely chuffed to finally get my copy and discover that this character that I had written had been uh, co-opted into the, um, the, the cast, as it were. So that, that pleased me very much. Okay. Nice. Is there a, I, I saw once a picture of like some free form uh, where there was a guy dis, um, dressed as a duck. Was that in one of your free forms? None of my free forms had duck characters. I was actually quite strongly anti-duck until <laughs> the late noughties when Stu Stansfield converted me to duckism and um <laughs> this was through his superb duck exploitation blog and i am now incredibly keen on ducks i think the free you're talking was about pretty, pretty instrumental in uh, helping out uh, the ducks around the grant wasn't he i think the character in the freeform you're thinking about was actually stew in one of the uh orlant-ish freeforms that was run at the tentacles convention uh, collection of him wearing um, swimming flippers on his feet and a pith helmet on his head and generally channeling duckness. It was profoundly convincing. But we never had <laughs> a duck character in a free form that I was involved in writing, to the best of my recollection. Maybe we should have done it. If we did today, <laughs> maybe we would have done it. Um, nice. Yeah. You, you were asking about favorite characters from yes. Life of Moonsun. I mean, they're all great fun. But I'm particularly fond of three of them as uh, writing exercises, and that's the characters who got more than one character sheet each. Ah. <laughs> um, 
So if you turn up to the game and you get, you've got your character sheet, and the first page of your character sheet says, you are Amora, the princess of free love. You've come from the city of Zoria to make a cultural exchange with Moon Sun's empire and find out what all these orgies are about and spread the messages of Zorian free love everywhere. And you turn to page two of the character sheet as a physical document. This is when things were on paper. Please. We're talking about the ancient times. You turn to page two, and at the top of the page it said, Everything on the first page is a lie. You are Yolanella, the talent countess of Spol. You have arrived in glamour in disguise to do your evil machinations. This is what you really believe. This is what you really want. It's a trick I learned from free free forms that Sandy Peterson had written, because it's very hard in these games not to accidentally glance at the front page of somebody else's character sheet. So if you're playing somebody who is in disguise, playing somebody who doesn't, not everything about them is publicly known. It's really important that the first page of the character sheet is completely misleading. The second one who had a misleading first page was Paulus Longvale, who you may remember as the narrator of the fiction in Cults of Terror. He's a young leader who went out to season himself on the frontier with Dorastor. Smart move, Paulus. So I wrote up a very sympathetic, you are Paulus Longvale, as in your youth you were seasoning on the Durastor frontier and you had some adventures with all Anthony, and now you've come back to the capital to take on your political role. Turn over to page two, which says everything on page one is true, except that also you are the Batman. Um, so Paulus Longvale's secret identity is that he is the masked vigilante who is hauling petty criminals off the streets of glamour to feed them to the Crimson Bat. He's the high priest of the Crimson Bat. We can all remember from Cults of Terror how impressed he was the first oh, time he nice. saw the Crimson Bat. And he, Paulus Longvale, is the Batman. He lives at one of those lovely estates we were talking about in um, one of the horn sides of the city. I, I think we called it Stately Wayne Manor, W-A-N-E, because we believe in giving things away. Um, so that was fun. <laughs> the third character was actually written, was entirely written by David Hall and should get all the credit for this, and that was Belex Maximus, yeah. the Imperial Warlord, who I think it's Chris's fault. He was the man in the steel mask. He was this sort of Victor Von Doom, Darth Vader figure who never took his helmet off. Um, and partway through the game, when something triggers him, he gets given his real character sheet that he didn't know existed and finds out that he's actually brainwashed um, General Fazer Wydred, the uh, Tarshite arch-rebel, who everyone else believes to have been killed by the Lunar Army in the last campaigning season. Shenanigans ensue. So that's the kind of thing we were playing around with in Life of Moonsun. And you can possibly tell that it's not entirely serious, but it is entirely fun. And in an empire whose organizing principles are mirrors and masks and illusions and grasping at hidden truths that are beyond your reach, I think that's an important thing to remember. So that's why those three are my, my absolute favorites. And that, of course, was Nick Brooks. And Chris Kidlow returning to the fray then. Um, uh, the Queen of the Kiss, that was Amora, uh, was, I think, the mother of a character that had already been in the previous freeform, the, um, the one about the Malchione councils. And she was a character who appears in White Bear and Red Moon as someone who'd stopped um, Gunder the Guilty uh, ever knowing love at all. And of course, Paulus Longvale was known uh, to the uh, players as the, the narrator of Cults of Terror. So there wasn't anything to make a player suspect 
those characters. Obviously, the Queen of the Kiss, obviously, Paulus Longvale ought to be there in Life of Moon Sun. Now, for me, I ended up uh, getting the responsibility for all the major female, uh, strong female characters. And so it's now almost impossible for me to choose which of those I liked best. What I liked was the overall concept. Up until then, the freeform games and the role-playing uh, hobby in general had been very masculine. And the female characters in the freeforms tended to be love interests for the male characters or wives of the male characters. And they were few and far between. Life of Moonsun allowed me to say, all right, well, the premier superhero in this story is Jari or the Razoress. The main economic character in this is the Red Dancer of Power. Uh, the main uh, foil to Moonsun's faltering grasp on the, on the Empire is his sister, Great Sister. These are actually meaty roles that are not defined as you're a something or other to a female. In fact, uh, Jari or Razoress has got a, a male uh, boy wonder going around with, with her as uh, Aeorin Beatpot. Uh, of all of those, in reality, it boiled down to the Red Dancer of Power. A, a totally just a kind of throwaway character that the Red Dancer of Power was something that comes down and uh, every year and has a child by a different father and is something to do with the cult of Atiris, is something to do as we made it to do with the economics. And I wanted it to be someone you wouldn't suspect. So that's why I made her like a, an anime schoolgirl or something. So people would constantly overlook the fact that she was somebody who knew how the whole framework of the freeform worked, who knew what the economics behind everybody's character sheet was. And the joy of seeing that character brought to life in Leicester and then again in Seattle by almost exactly as I'd written it was absolutely incredible. So there was obviously something behind that character, that throwaway line in the, the genitalia box. There was this character called the Red Dance of Power that took on unholy life once it had been written up for the free form. Mm, nice. And um, like a couple of you mentioned, like, you know, a couple of, you know, cheeky, not so serious things that you did in those free forms. And uh, I mean, I, I only came to Glorantha only a few years ago, so I didn't know the Glorantha of the 90s, but uh, it seems that the Glorantha of the 90s was a bit more uh, um, jokey, like there was more um, uh, more humor in it. Like, do you think we've lost that? Like, is, is Glorantha all greedy and serious now? Nick Brook here. Um, I, I think Glorantha's always been funny. It's hard to be deadly serious about a world full of tapir people, sentient baboons, and talking ducks. And if you try, you might find that you yourself are another ridiculous feature of the setting. Um, when we play with Glorantha, we are trying to have fun and enjoy ourselves. Um, balancing that with archaeological reconstruction is for every group to decide. And I think one important thing to remember about a freeform game is that we are shoveling enough ideas to keep a role-playing campaign running for months, if not years, into um, maybe eight hours uh, and running the whole thing hot the whole time and uh, just, you know, blowing the doors off it. So I don't think that the way we run Freeforms is the same as the way we run Glorantha, but I do think the way I myself have always engaged with Glorantha has tried to be open-minded and humorous because I know that that's the way that Greg Stafford 
uh, Sandy Peterson and Jeff Richards, to name but three, have always run Duranthor. Mm-hmm. Mike or Chris, you have anything yeah, to say? Uh, yeah, Mike here. Um, yeah, I, I was been pondering this question, and uh, I think it does remain to be seen. Um, I think a lot of that sort of silliness and whimsy that you're talking about was really sort of coming out of um, a lot of the fan-related material, whether it was Tales of the Reaching Moon, you know, we're heavily involved in doing the freeforms. So with the Johnstown Compendium being a relatively new thing, um, I think we have every potential to see um, creator content whimsy um, really sort of coming back in. Um, I don't know whether you saw that silliness in the um, in the official product lines for, for RuneQuest and Glorantha um, in the 90s. I mean, I think it was mostly mm-hmm. sort of fan-based. I mean, obviously, if you go back to the 80s, then we have the ridiculous dark troll jokes, which I never really got. Um, but I think, yeah, I think there's every potential for... for um, and I think that's the wonderful thing about, um, about the current iteration um, of RuneQuest and Glorantha is... Um, the bones are there to hang just about anything on. Um, and I think that's that's the real heavy lifting that Jeff Richard and the crew are doing is you are you should be able to hang the whimsy off that if you want. But because there is not whimsy baked into it, um, if your sense of humor differs or your vision, again, your Glorantha may vary. And I think the 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 actual official products allow it to vary. Uh, and I'm very hopeful that the uh, uh, Johnstown Compendium will really see a, a flourishing of all manner of um, interesting products uh, as we go forward. If, 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 if I may follow that up, Mike, it's Nick Brooks speaking here. I mean, we're all friends of Jeff Richard. And when the Rough Guide to Glamour was coming out, he posted something that I thought was very generous um, on one of the RuneQuest mailing lists or discussion groups on Facebook. I'm sorry, I say mailing lists because I'm very old. You're talking about the original Rough Guide to Glamour in the late 90s? Uh, Nope, I'm talking about the new edition. Um, Oh, the new one, okay, yeah. Jeff posted on a public Facebook group saying that this is 95% how he sees Glamour. Um, And he says, but remember, in RuneQuest, a 96 to 100 is always a fumble. So <laughs> um, the thing is, the, the, our version of Glamour is not entirely orthodox Bronze Age, archaeologically reconstructed in line with contemporary Glamour thought. Mm-hmm. That said, it's 95% congruent with the way Chaosium's creative director, the man driving Glamour forward, thinks it should work. Um, as a point of comparison, he said that the earlier hero quest or hero wars, I forget which attempts, were about 25%. So <laughs> we're, we're so, pretty happy with that. Well, let, let's talk about the 96 to 100 then. Uh, Nick, why, like, uh, the, the, the Rough Guide to Glamour contains this a song called Pelorian Rhapsody. And I'm like, why? And, and why not isn't an acceptable answer. <laughs> Surely that's not a fumble, Ludo. Um, oh. <laughs> Are we supposed to be singing it? I'm pretty sure if I heard... Well, actually, could you all three sing a bit of it now on the podcast? Oh, absolutely. I shall open my proof copy of the book. The, 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 like the first... Uh, 
Let me let me get my version up here. Give me one second. Um, <laughs> right, who's got pitch who's got pitch for our choir? Lavishly illustrated by our friend Dario Carallo, who really knocked me park on this one. Um, I, I just said I'd like it to look kind of like this. We we had a long discussion about how um, we wanted the pictures of the seven mothers to look like they could be charismatic revolutionary cult leaders rather than um, mannequins weighed down with their cult affiliations. And I'm, I'm really pleased with what he came out with. It looks just like the classic <laughs> video by Queen. Um, nice. Shall we begin with uh, the preparation lines? Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, well, I'll, just... do Yanifal, I'll do Yanafal, Mike do Dan 5, Chris do Iripi, and then we'll carry on in the same order. Well, Yuri <laughs> can do this, Ola. Oh, one second. I'm getting some uh, getting some computer issue here, so just give me a little bit of time here. How fortunate! <laughs> oh, what a terrible that's, timing! That's, that's the electronic music. <laughs> yeah, there are in fact six of us casting now, and there are six voices. I'm not saying to sing along with Nick Brook in Pelorian Rhapsody. It is infernal. <laughs> Um, well, I think our cue will be that when Mr. Hagen unmutes, we can begin singing my masterwork, um, Pelorian well, Yeah, I do think this is actually one of the best things I've written. And actually, I don't say uh, that lightly. While Mike figures out uh, the uh, uh, his computer issues, uh, why isn't Freddy the Red Emperor? Like, especially like you're British, Nick. This is this is shameful for you. That's a really good question. And in fact, Mike was our lobbyist for Freddy to be the Red Emperor. Um, oh, really? and he has now fixed his mic issues. The thing we had, um, I've, I've talked about this before, the reason that the Red Emperor looks kind of like Elvis, we owe to our friend Michael O'Brien. Um, we, we all love Bob. And there was a time in the mid-90s when he wrote his first story about Moonsun. It's actually collected in this book. It's called The Sun of Light Awakens, and it's about Moonsun waking up in the morning and having a pee. Um, clearly proper um, heroic sword and sorcery stuff here. But what was happening in Mob's, in Mob's head and in his text was he'd realized that there was actually a tragic story you could tell about Elvis through the lens of Moonsal Argentius. There's this guy, he's this great entertainer. He's worshipped as a god. He's a talented musician. He lives in a palace that is everything he could dream of. This is... Um, Elvis's Vegas years. He's had his military career. That's behind him now. Um, he has millions of devoted followers, but he's still bound by the constraints of mundanity and mortality and this kind of lifestyle that's fueled on adulation and drugs and cheeseburgers um, is not actually very healthy and very good for you. And Mob wrote this story about um, the Red Emperor waking up in the morning and having a pee and talking about stuff using the imagery and voice of Elvis in Vegas. And it really struck a chord with all of us. Uh, he developed that theme further. Here. In I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody. That does definitely qualify as working for Freddie uh, Mercury as well. Absolutely. Um, yes. He Oh, Mike's back online. I'll, I'll, back. I'll hand over to you, Mike, but you have to explain the toilet thing. <laughs> what? 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 No, oh, thank Michael O'Brien for that. Oh, my. nothing to do with me. Okay, uh, I, I'll step in. The last pages of the book are a short story, of, uh, a mercifully short story 
called Moon Sun's Number Two, which are largely about the Red Emperor's constipation. Uh, you're reading this account of how the people who actually are trying to make the Lunar Empire work have to gather around Elvis's golden throne as he tries to take a dump. And there are things going on in that story that are far more subtle than it appears from that description. But essentially, that might, yes. That, that might be the, the, the biggest argument for people to go buy the rough guy to glamour on drive-thru RPG. Uh, I, I really do think it, it's the last thing you read in the book, and it's the first moment we have ever hinted that there might be something wrong with this Red Emperor. Yeah, no, I would have, I would have definitely made the push for Freddie Mercury, um, but as Nick sort of told me in no uncertain terms, I've already paid Dario for the art, so we're going with Elvis. Um, <laughs> um, but no, I, this is this is something I did think through, and uh, uh, this is this is entirely my mad idea. Is what we get from Mob's one of Mob's stories is the fact that Moonson is drinking industrial quantities of lunar tea. So it suddenly occurred to me that he's ingesting massive quantities of moon rock, which may actually cause his physical appearance to fluctuate in line with the phases of the moon. So thus he probably could go from a full corpulent Elvis through to a, an emaciated Freddie Mercury uh, with all permutations in between, uh, including Jeff Richards' Telesavallis at his apex. So whatever your view of Moon Sun is, at some point during the week, he, he probably looks like as you imagine him. And just this idea of this figure who was just like swelling and contracting just became this immense sort of pathetic figure of like, oh my God, oh my goodness, what, what, what have we created here? Who, who have we got ruling over us? Um, it just was just both amusing and incredibly pathos-inducing at the same time. So Bill here again. Are we waffling? Are we trying to delay our singing? No, I have, I have it. I, I had to mute because I was printing it out. So, <laughs> well, it, it might, it might be uh, to to your credit. You can, if it fails, you can put the excuse on the delays because, like everybody, will have like you know between a hundred or two hundred millisecond delay, and it's impossible to do music properly with uh, with this type of recording software. So it will probably just completely fail. <laughs> Shall, shall I begin the total failing then? Who are we singing, Who are we Nick? Singing? Uh, obviously, Chris, I'm Yanafal, you're um, Mike Stand 5, you are Irrepeat on tour, and then we hand over yep. to our hosts for the three female parts for obvious reasons. <sighs> Does anyone here sing along with a choir regularly? Oh, yeah, that would be Just me. Just you. Oh. Yep. Bugger. Never mind. <laughs> oh, crikey. Um, before we sing, Chris Goodlow here. We probably should say that I thought that um, RuneQuest was absolutely deathly serious until I met Mike O'Brien. I started reading his work in Tales of the Meeting Moon, and his whole concept of maximum game fun totally permeated everything that I write, and that is absolutely hot-wired into the current version of RuneQuest Grantham. It's actually written inside the rulebook, the maximum game fun, and of course, Mob is now a leading light of the Chaosium, so I think um, we have certainly have not lost whimsy at all. I think it's right there in the DNA of the modern game. Nice. Well, let me know when you guys are ready. I'll give you a uh, full introduction, uh, Las Vegas style. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Bill. Listeners, gentlemen, fellow co-hosts, 
for our very first time, may I introduce a duo continental choir, North American and European, coming at you live in a great experiment, the Red Army Choir. <laughs> Is this our young life? Is this the one we need? Caught in Torang streets, can't escape our conspiracy. Open your eyes, have signs in the skies, just see. He's just a poor girl, she's got no family. Easy come, easy go, send her soul down to earth. Anyway, the moon goes, doesn't really matter who she is. Who she Ding, ding, ding. That was. Ding, ding. I know this is not the right game, but I think we should all roll for San. <laughs> beautiful, absolutely beautiful. That sounded Ludo. truly horrible. Tears have been brought to my eyes. Tears have been brought to my eyes. Yeah. Well, if listeners, uh, if listeners wants to uh, want to sing along and uh, sing the rest of the song, they can get the rough guide to glamour on Drive Through RPG, or turn up to any of the many Glorantham conventions in a city near you. Oh yeah. Anyway, back to our scheduled uh, uh, interview. Oh my. Oh. Well, I guess um, I have a couple of questions. In which case, um, gentlemen, in no particular order, uh, introduce yourself and let us know. Had you played a module that you really enjoyed? Is there any out there that you wish you had written yourself? Bill, uh, it's Nick Brook here. Um, I had to think about how to answer that, and I think actually the module I'm most impressed by for RuneQuest as a single piece of work is Michael O'Brien's Sun County. And that's because of the way that it crashes the pure, chaste idealism of Yelmalia cult into the horrible reality of life in Prax, creating a mangled mess uh. that is picked over by baboons and i just love the, 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 the ballsiness that mob had in saying taking this cult that was meant to be all shiny and clean and nice and showing you how it really works for me it was a a moment of glorantham upskirting that has seldom been matched <laughs> chris goodlow here um, for me, it's Griffin Mountain. I played in Griffin Mountain as a player at university, absolutely bowled over by the depth of it, and it, it's absolutely Bronze Age. So although it kind of pretends to be Neolithic, they're, they're bronze-armed people living in Cyclopean masonry, citadels, exactly like being an ancient um, Mycenae. And... When I, I never read, I never read uh, the the campaign uh, or, or until um, Rick Mike brought it out as a Glorantham classic. And I sat down, and then you read. This is absolutely incredible, like an encyclopedia of this Neolithic Bronze Age society. All the people you could meet, all the encounters, things we just thought had come spontaneously out of our gaming. So I think that's an absolutely astonishing um, scenario, uh, set of scenarios. Yeah, this is Mike. Mike here. Um, 
Yeah, you know, I had a thought about this too, and uh, oh god, it's ask, asking to choose between your children, really. Um, I didn't mm-hmm. do an awful lot of um, uh, RuneQuest playing when I was in college and high school. Um, I'm much approaching this much more from a Gloranthan aspect, but when I thought about it, I realized that I think the um, the one thing that made me sort of stop up, uh, sorry, stop and really take notice of RuneQuest uh, was Dave Morris's Dealing with Demons articles from White Dwarf back in 1983. I, I believe there was some attempt, they were going to republish them, but just reading this when we were playing D&D as a group at high school and thinking, why are we not playing this game? And it just stuck with me ever since that it was a window into something deeper and darker and more mysterious. But at the same time, uh, that wonderful cartoon in there of like the flowchart of how to control your demon was also just inherently hilarious. And it's like, how is this happening? And to me, to my mind, that's almost the essence of, of how I want my Glorantha to be is funny and amusing, engaging, but at the same time, deeply disturbing. I heard a lot about that article. Uh, I should really track it down because uh, I think you're like the third or fourth person I hear mentioning it as as very influential. Worth mentioning, I don't think I've ever seen a bad White Dwarf article on your inquest. I haven't. That's true, bad scenario. That's very true, yeah. In all fairness, there have been none in the last 40 or so years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, it's time to ask the most uh, serious question we could possibly ask. A little bit of um, investigative reporting went into this, a little bit of thought. Ducks. Uh, what's the most chloranthin? Yes, ducks, of course. Uh, hopefully that's not the answer to the question. Ducks. What is the most chloranthin <laughs> thing you've ate? <laughs> is the question. What is the most most chloranthin thing you have ate? Oh, I'd be happy to kick this off. This is Mike. Corflu surprise. Mm. <laughs> I was Corflu surprise. to attend um, the, the convulsion where uh, Home of the Bold and there was an Eat at Geo's competition and I submitted uh, a dish called Corflu surprise and was astonished that it actually won. Um, <laughs> And it's now <laughs> made its way into Glorantha law. Uh, but yeah, that was re- one of the moments. It's like when I realized I was part of the tribe. Um, is, so is, there, I, is there correction fluid in the recipe? No, there's actually something that looks like it, though. It's oh. uh, cream of coconut. <laughs> oh, nice. So can, can you can you give us the vague recipe? Uh, the very simple recipe yeah, most is definite. A, a tin of tuna fish, um, cream of coconut, and the Indonesian spice sambal olek, and maybe a little bit of black pepper on top of that. And you mix that all together as a tuna salad, uh, and then you serve it as you like, and it's very tasty. Nice. But the, the sambal olek is the key, is that, that exotic spice. Fantastic. Oh, Nick? Well, I'm, I'm glad that's out in public now, because I, I, Nick Brook here. I'm, I'm glad that's out in public, because the scenario I'm writing at the moment has a small section called Court Flu Surprise, and now more people than just me and Mike will get the joke. Um, the most glorious thing I've eaten was brought by somebody very generous and thoughtful to another Eat Joe's event, although not the one that the Court Flu Surprise was served at. Uh, somebody turned up with a jar of what they described as uh, octopus larvae, um, which have always fascinated me. There's a, a theory um, that I think Paul Riley originated oh, 35 years or more ago, 
um, that when you, how you get walked by is you get a normal person and some kind of horrible parasitic octopus creature attaches itself to their head and gradually grows to cover their head and then they've got this tentacular octopus head on top of their head and they're a octopus. So octopus larvae <laughs> were inherently interesting. What it was, was it was a jar of pickled baby octopi that you ate whole. <laughs> and wow. they are delicious. Uh. And after that, I, I used not to eat octopus. Now I would go out of my way to eat octopus. And it's not because I'm controlled by an octopus that's inside me and pulling the strings. Octopus, the dinner that keeps on giving. <laughs> and there's a little bit of story there for our non-Grantin uh, uh, fellows. Uh, can you explain that, Nick? Uh, oh, yeah. We, we did have in an early issue of Tales of the Reaching Moon, there was, a, I think it was a rumor or a, uh, a note from Notchit, which was our equivalent of the Johnstown Compendium scribbly entries in um, Chaosian products at the time. Uh, talked about a rumor that the Lunar Army fed its troops on Walktopus. And the brilliant thing about the Walktopus as a Grantham creature, which has all the GMs out there and indeed all the players will probably remember, is that they regenerate fast. And the only way of stopping them regenerating is to douse them in strong acid. And what's in your stomach is not sufficiently strong acid. So if you eat a little Walktoburger... <laughs> And it's in your stomach, and it's regenerating, and uh, your stomach acid is insufficient to uh, entirely dissolve it. You have got food for life, <laughs> as long as nothing went wrong in the production process. Um, now, obviously, if your army is, if some of your troops are killed in the line of duty, it's all very sad, and we'll inter their remains as best we can. But also, it's quite conceivable that Walktopi will then sprout from the bellies of the deceased and cause trouble for whoever is now in command in the field, which is actually a bonus. Um, and I'm, I'm sure nothing could possibly go wrong. The Lunar College of Magic assure me that everything has been precisely calculated and there is no risk whatsoever associated with the eating of Walktopi. And you can bank that. Awesome. Well, now, that uh, gives us one last uh, person to weigh in on. The most granted thing they have ate. Uh, Chris Goodlow deliberately set out to eat the most lunar thing ever when uh, our new edition of the Rough Guide to Glamour came out. I said, what's going to happen now? I'm going to eat ostrich steak with maize washed down with pink gin. So. <laughs> nice. Wow. <laughs> Um, I, and that's that's as linear as it gets. Nick, Nick here, I should perhaps explain that Chris has a particular vendetta against ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story behind this. Uh, no, not at all. Oh, well, are there ostriches in, in Peloria? I wasn't aware of that. No, there aren't. <laughs> so why? Uh, given that there are no ostriches in Peloria, one might wonder why they decorated the front of this so-called Imperial Lunar Handbook uh, for Hero Wars, Hero Club. Oh, those were supposed to be an Ogna. Um, so uh, Jeff, in the um, in the guide to Glorantha, uh, wrote down, in Rinlidi, hundreds of years ago, there used to be ostrich riders, now no more. <laughs> well, because everybody ate them, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, nice. And we know why. They're delicious. <laughs> 
Okay, great. Well, that uh, gets us uh, through a lot of our topic, but uh, not all of it. We do have some more rapid-fire questions if you folks are up to it. Do you feel ready? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yep. Fantastic. All right. Uh, let me fire a couple at you once again. Um, one uh, word would be uh, sufficient. Our sentence would be great. Humorous would be even better. So <laughs> let's go with cat or dog. Cat. Cat. Dog. Boo. <laughs> Melder or Kellymar? Liz Melder. <laughs> and we end on Lunar, well, I end anyway. We will be thrown over to Yorg or Ludo. We're not sure which. Lunar or Atlantic? Lunar. 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 Okay, well, this, this is consistent. <laughs> <laughs> so, next heavyweight, Yamal or Yamalio? Yamalio. Yalmalio. What's the other one? <laughs> <laughs> Is there another one? <laughs> oh, great. Oh. Yalmalio. Nice. So, wasps or beetles? Beetles. Because wasps are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, wasps. Nice and trim. No. Ludo, have you got some uh, rapid fires for us? Uh, yes. Metric or imperial? Nick. Metric. Imperial. Oh, who said Imperial? <laughs> me. That was um, Imperial Nick. for me too. What? You're both wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was a simple question, so you got it wrong. I mean come Oh my Christopher here. Nick wisely did point out, have you ever read any fantasy fiction that says he wandered many a lonely kilometre. But no, of course not. <laughs> but, I mean, interestingly enough, RuneQuest is in metric for the most part. I was always confused by that. I mean, I'm happy, but I'm confused. Uh, but, uh, yes, you'll be even more confused if you look in details at the way they use metric. Some of the conversions are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think they got they got it wrong. Anyway, last uh, last rapid fire question. Try to get it right. Uh, rock and roll like the Red Emperor or funk like EWF? Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. And you all three got it wrong. <laughs> and what does EWF stand for, uh, good, good Ludo? So EWF is either uh, Empire of the Warm Friends or Earth, Wind and Fire. Because Earth, we, Wind and Fire. We all know Jeff is a big, uh, <laughs> is a big fan of, um, uh, of uh, funk. Anyway, well, thank you. Um, Gentlemen, here's an odd question that I saw while uh, looking up how to do interviews. And I looked at it and I went, that's yeah. a weird question. Yeah, because this I is our first interview. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we haven't got a clue. I hope it shows. <laughs> Join the club. Oh, my. Okay. Um, let's assume that you folks were running the interview. Is there a question we have not asked that you think we should have asked? Where did we screw up? What is a question that we did not ask you? Um, I would have appreciated the chance to talk about the experience of publishing via the yeah. Johnstown Compendium platform. Oh, let's do so. Is um, it good or bad? It's been entirely positive for me. Now, I'd, I'd heard about this as a thing that might be happening, and then it kind of launched at the start of December. And just before it launched, 
I had the opportunity to chat when they were in London with uh, Mob and Jeff from Chaosium. And they were entirely supportive and encouraging of the idea of getting some of our old stuff out there again. So I had to think about what could I do, and I checked in with Chris and Mike over kind of Christmas break, and eventually I thought, you know what? I reckon we really could get the Guides to Glamour out there again. And once I said that, Chaosium was so utterly supportive, it blew me away. So Mob said, hey, have all of my old stories, print all of them, no royalties, please, just get that stuff out there. Um, Rick cracked open the um, archive of the resources he used to pull together the original Rough Guide to Glamour and all of the lunar-centered issues of Tales of the Reaching Moon he'd worked on so that if we could get permission to use them, we would have access to the original art resources and that speeded things up no end. And Jeff, for his point, um, he was always enthusiastic and supportive and really happily kibitzing with us as we pulled this thing together. And then in early January, we asked, um, is there something you'd like to write for us apart from a foreword telling everybody that this is your favorite book ever? And he wrote us that. And, uh, and he did. He said he'd quite like to write The Cult of Glamour, the goddess of the city, because at the time he was running a RuneQuest campaign set in Glamour where the players were all lunar imperial nobles and his wife was playing a priestess of the goddess Glamour. So he was obviously incentivized, strongly incentivized, I too am a married man, to write the best possible cult write-up he could, and he did. And while he was getting himself into the groove for that, the inspiration struck him that the physical manifestation of the goddess Glamour is not unlike uh, Debbie Harry of Blondie. Uh, so that was added to our mix in January this year, and Mob, uh, Jeff turned in his cult write-up, and it was a very good, very straightforward RuneQuest cult write-up of a city goddess who happens to not want to be involved in running cities very much. So it's an interesting cult write-up, and we took that and we adulterated it with a heavy leavening of blondie lyrics and in-jokes. Uh, and we also commissioned one of our favorite artists, Antonia Doncheva, who is absolutely amazingly talented and I cannot believe we got to work with her to turn in a full page full color illustration of um, Lucha Blondie Glamour the goddess manifest in her city which is on page 99 of the book I've got it open in front of me now and I'm just blown away by this um, it's a bit like having as far as I'm concerned it's like having Blondie on the Muppet show us collaborating <laughs> with Antonia to produce this thing so yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's a nice piece yeah we, we, we've been entirely happy, very encouraged, very supportive with the Chaosium in bringing this deeply non-Bronze Age, non-canonical version of Glamour, which is, as I say, 95% um, perfect as far as Jeff Richard is concerned, back into, well, not just into distribution as a digital thing, but now into print. Um, and on a small personal note, I cannot tell you how lovely it is to hold a hardback book that is ours in my hands. It's, um, <laughs> I'm actually profoundly moved as I, as I wave this thing in front of me and try to use it to crush the wasps that Mr. Gidlow has summoned. <laughs> <laughs> Might I also recommend the Guide to Glorantha if you ever have a zombie apocalypse. Uh, one good headshot and uh, guaranteed a TKO on any zombie coming at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good Absolutely. weapon. Absolutely. Uh, Mike, any question? Most definitely. Uh, any question you would have liked to have asked? Yeah, you? it would have been it would have been nice to be able to, uh, um, uh, and I'm going to do so now. Is really sort of address a shout out to the to the interior <laughs> art as well as the cover art is. Uh, as well as the folks from Chaosium um, who rummaged around in their various, you know, drawers and brought things out, was working with the artist, you know, Simon Bray and Dario Corallo, um, who had worked on Tales, uh, especially Simon, who had done some work for um, uh, my cult write-up uh, of Dan Five Corone. And he is the one man who managed to get inside my head. Um, my favorite illustration for the Rough Guide to Glamour is the brew custodian because it was a very very throwaway comment that i had that the brew operate the public conveniences and he illustrated it wonderfully but not <laughs> only did he just pull out the original artwork he said no 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 wait wait i can do this better so he actually went back and redid all of his original illustrations and then with dario it was like what do you think this looks like and so you give a throwaway comment like you know, he's saying, um, I need to illustrate Ivex Devouring Dog. What does he look like? And I go, an angry Danny DeVito. And there he is. So <laughs> it was just literally with it. I don't know how he managed it. In minutes, he would just produce this, this you know, it was just you had to be very careful what you said to him because you go away and draw it. It was, it was <laughs> so... It's just been an absolute pleasure that, you know, I found my original maps that I had. And, you know, we, it just all that none of us, no one who worked on this project lost any of the original content from 25 years ago, which was astonishing that for some reason we were all so emotionally attached to this project that we'd held on to this detritus from our 20s and were able to put it all back together. And thanks to Nick, we were able to actually improve it and actually make it even better than it originally was. Nice. So, Chris? And over, over here, Chris Goodlow, I think what you should have asked us is why the Lunar Empire? Because everybody works on the Orlanthi. The Orlanthi are like the heartland of uh, Gorantha. Everything is seen through the, the lens of Orland for these kind of Californian barbarian surfer characters, <laughs> and the answer is when there's a film of Garantha, obviously, all the lunars are going to be played by British character actors, amongst which I think uh, me and Nick and Mike kind of uh, rank ourselves. And of course, up until a hundred years ago. We were the evil Red Empire. We were the <laughs> Red Empire is coming that the uh, the surfer dudes of uh, of um, the New World had to worry about. So pretty much, when you look at the at the rule book, when you look at White Bear and Red Moon uh, back in the day, there's these two empires. What do you want to be? These kind of backwoods Davy Crockett's Daniel Boone's, <laughs> or do you want to be? Servants of the great Red Queen in your red uniforms. Of course, we're going to do that. <laughs> nice. Oh well. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was absolutely marvelous having all you three fine gentlemen on our uh, little podcast. I hope you had fun. Oh yeah, it's been a pleasure. Well, that was a little bit nice. That was a little bit nice. You guys are all fired. You're not getting paid for this. Nice <laughs> <Nice word. laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Buy our book, that's payment enough. Yes. <laughs> a rough guide to glamour, available on drive-through RPG. No refunds. <laughs> <laughs> and out in hardback. Uh, by the way, uh, how much oh, did it sell? Oh um, we are closing in on 400 copies now. About 300 of those are digital. And the rest, since it went on sale as a hardcover about a week ago, uh, 85 or so in hardcover, we think. Awesome. Has it been mentioned yet? Uh, what is the money going toward? Uh, the money is going the towards... The next project. Our next project. Uh, everything I earn from this is going into the art budget for my future uh, projects. I chucked out Fantastic. A, I chucked out a small scenario that had no original art whatsoever and one map hand-drawn by me using a digital crayon. And um, it's called The Duel at Danger Ford. It's about to go Electrum on the Johnstown Compendium. And I decided after doing that that in future my stuff would be beautifully illustrated. So I'm working with a bunch of Glamantan artists and strangely enough, some of them want cash up front to produce works of beauty. <laughs> um, so well, every, everything I'm earning from the Guide to Glamour So let's is, see if I got this right. You folks are working in order to pay for your next work. Yes, absolutely. Can we get a teaser of what the next work is? Nick? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll answer this collectively because that's the interesting answer. Um, we are, of course, working on the Lunar Book 2. Um, mm. And I think the immediate success the, the the vast overwhelming success of the rough guide to glamour we we are part of a community we are all us as we lunas say um and we know that the rough guide to glamour really there was an appetite to buy this kind of stuff um and we are assuming that's a repeatable phenomenon so uh we're working on a second book it'll be an entirely lunar book again because obviously why would you put any second rate material in there um and our structure <laughs> for it is based around an heretical work of lunar literature that my friend Mr. Gidlow wrote in the in the 90s and the early noughties, and it is in fact very naughty, uh, called The Celeric Verses. <laughs> uh, Chris, do you want to dilate on The Celeric Verses for a bit, and then I'll get back to talking about what we're actually doing. <laughs> the Celeric Verses are a, a band work of lunar fiction, attributing as they do human motives to the divine seven mothers. A piece of fantasy fiction of casting the um, the seven mothers in Machiavellian way uh, from the perspective of the city that they live in, Blessed Torang, from the perspective of the young girl who is going to be brought into their conspiracy, who's going to be Kilo Noroi, and so on. Um, I based this on the Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie, uh, which wove um, Islamic. Uh, mythology and theology with uh, modern-day British concerns, and uh, wasn't a banned book in Britain, but got a fatwa against the author from the Ayatollah, and uh, now you won't see it in any public libraries. And I thought something like that for the Lunar Empire about the Divine Seven Mothers. Cool. Well, thanks again to our guests, uh, Nick, Mike, and Chris. Thanks, guys. It's been really great having you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, write another book and maybe we get uh, you on again.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Wind Words. Our website is windwords.fm, where you can find other episodes. Reach us via email at tribe at windwords.fm for any questions or feedback. We are all us. <laughs>